And people said, we are paying so much for this course. And now you're going to like charge us for coffee too. Is there no end to, to like your chutzpah? <laughs> so, so I saw this place was not doing well. I saw that I was being booked in advance and I, I said, okay, enough. I think I can do this on my own. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Business of Freelancing podcast, where we hope you get better clients, make more money, and live a happier and a healthier life freelancing. That is our goal. I'm your host, Brennan Nunn, and today I'm joined with my good friend, Ruben Lerner. Uh, Ruben is actually also going to be speaking at the European conference, the W Freelancing Conference Europe, and uh, he's going to be talking about uh, giving really an extended presentation and a more in-depth presentation of kind of what we're discussing in this interview, which is using training as a productized offering. So, you know, instead of selling something where you're actually getting into somebody's business and delivering something of of substance, instead, how can you train their team? How do you train your client to be better off at their job, to be maybe give them a skill they don't have or something like that? So that's what uh, that's what Ruben and I talk about in the episode. Before we get over there, I just want to tell you, you know, I, I I love what I do. You know, I love that I get to um, every week I get emails from, you know, tens of thousands. I mean, I don't get tens of thousands of emails. It seems like it some days, but from the tens of thousands of people who are either, you know, visiting the website a lot or listening to the podcast or on the newsletter, usually all of the above, you know, reaching out with questions or success stories. I mean, we've Gina, all she really does uh, full time for me now is she's cataloging a lot of the success that we have coming in. People who are taking what we have to offer, whether free or premium, and applying it to their business and having incredible results. Uh, That's actually over. If you haven't seen our student success story directory, it's at doubleyourfreelancing.com slash students. Um, You can see, you know, (laughs) we've got every kind of freelancer slash consultant represented uh, in our database, and we're adding new ones all the time. Um, if that's you, if you go to any of these success stories, there's a link to fill out a quick form. You know, it's a great way to to kind of get some exposure. I mean, we have a you know we have a lot of people visiting uh, our website, but it's a great way just to share with others who are like you uh, what you've been going through. So we have so many things going on. We've got that. We've got this 500 plus global meetups directory that's going to be coming out soon. It might already be up by the time this episode's uh, ready. Um, we've got just big changes coming up. I mean, again, if you've been following, especially the website, it, it's it's completely redone. So I'll probably actually do a, it'll be a little off topic-ish, but I'll probably do an episode on the redesign because I've got a lot of people who ask me about it. So I'll probably just, you know, tell everything about why I did certain things, what I changed and everything else. Let's not delay anymore. Here is Ruben Lerner. All right. I am happy to be here with my good friend, Ruben Lerner. Ruben, it, I've known you, I don't know how long now, but it's it's probably a few years, I want to say. A few years, yeah. yeah. And we're finally actually going to be meeting, it sounds like in June, uh, at the at the conference in, in Europe. So awesome. So first off, welcome to the Business of Freelancing show. Thank you. This is uh, fun for me too. So we're going to be talking today about how you've made a lot of inroads into doing corporate training. Um, and, and kind of specifically what effect it's had on your business, how you got doing that and everything else. But before we get there, um, just take a 
30 seconds to a minute and share a bit about your background, what you do, and so on. Sure. So my, my background actually starts back when I was in college, uh, a little more than 20 years ago, when I was working on the student newspaper. And um, a friend of mine came back from a talk he went to. He said, hey, there's this guy, Tim Berners-Lee. He just invented this thing called the World Wide Web. I think we should get involved with this. This is going to be really big. So we set up a web server for the newspaper and sent him an email. He was like, oh, that's so cool. I'll put you on my list of all the websites in the world. Um, <laughs> and it sort, of, it sort of grew from there. Uh, I don't think he's any longer in the business of listing all the websites out there. It's Pro- yeah, that, that might be a pretty lengthy <laughs> list nowadays. <laughs> he's handed over the reins to Google on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically from that time, I've uh, sort of seen myself as a web developer and so uh, after working a bit in the U.S., uh, after graduating from college, I'd already, always planned to move to Israel. And uh, when I moved here in uh, 1995, I basically hung out my shingle as a consultant. And so for the last 20 years or so, I've, my, I haven't had a real job, as it were. My job has been um, helping companies doing their web development, either doing development for them, uh, outsourcing it for them, or uh, going in and doing consulting. And um, it started off doing Perl and Linux, then sort of migrated into more Ruby and Python, um, and then some Postgres as well. So it's, I'm basically like an open source web, full stack web developer, um, but I've started to, as we'll, we'll talk now, start to focus more on certain areas of that. Okay, so you started out doing, like you just said, traditional kind of web development for companies. You did a little business consulting where you would, I, I assume, help them out kind of strategically. But with the end of it always being, you know, you coming in and doing certain coding projects or whatever else to help with that. Well, let's just define exactly what when we say training, what is what does that usual engagement look like for you? So it's funny. I actually was looking through some old email just earlier today. And so I have this email from 1998 uh, from uh, Checkpoint, which is a you know, well-known firewall company. They're based here in Israel. Them sending me emails saying, hey, we do a whole lot of Perl in our uh, in our group. Would you be able to come in and give a class? And I think I helped them already with some Perl. It's not clear from the email, not clear from the context, but basically we've already been using you to do some development for us. Would you be interested in coming in and um, teaching a whole bunch of our new employees how Perl works? <laughs> I like to sort of teach them to do what you do. Sure. Yeah. Um, and my answer was, yeah, sure. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. Thinking to myself, oh my God, I have no idea what I'm doing, but sure, they want a proposal, I'll send them a proposal. Um, so did you, I mean, did you just come up with like some random pulled a number out of thin air sort of thing to make that work or? No, I basically said, and I remember, I remember so clearly saying this to people for years, you're paying for my time. Mm-hmm. And so whether I'm doing programming for eight hours or teaching for eight hours, it's eight hours of my time. Because you just build like an hourly rate. That's um, exactly what it was. It, I, it. I spelled it out to them. I said, since I'll be teaching for eight hours, this is what my rate is for each day. Of course, the course is three days. Bam. That's what I'm going to Even though you were making, you know, X number of their employees significantly better at their job. You were that's still right. going by. Yeah, sure. Okay. So go on. <laughs> um, and so that went really well. And I, uh, I then did a whole bunch of courses for them. Every few months, they'd call me up and say, can you do another course for us? Um, and then it was sort of a side thing. It was maybe 5%, maybe in like really crazy months, 10% of my work. Um, but the bulk of the time, I saw myself as a developer, and I was offering development uh, to people. And I sort of scaled up and scaled down. When the uh, crash of 2000, the dot-com implosion of 2000 happened, I had six employees at the time. Uh, working for me doing web development in various languages and technologies. Um, and uh, sort of then, then <laughs> that downsized to be just me. And really and truly, it didn't change much until just a few years ago. 
it was always like some training, mostly development. Uh, and they would always sort of come at the right time. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I had the very, very traditional consultants, uh, um, I don't know, calendar of feast or famine, where I would have tons of work one month, and then it would get to the end of the month, I'd say, oh my God, what am I doing next month? Yeah, how do and I, I, thought it was, I thought I was being so clever in that I would like call up some clients and say, hey, I have some time next month, would you be interested in having me do some stuff for you? And like, if I could have a pipeline of two to three weeks, I was in seventh heaven. Well, that is clever. I mean, honestly, there's a lot of people I know who don't do that at all. Like, I, I was actually just talking with somebody yesterday who... He was telling me that he's kind of going through a slump, you know, a slump in work and everything and wanted some advice. And I first thing I asked was, have you have you talked to any of your past clients? And, you know, he said no. And, you know, it's, it's very common, surprisingly. I mean, that's that's kind of the lowest hanging fruit, I think, imaginable. But I think a, a lot of us just don't assume. I think a lot of us think so. Unfortunately, think so transactionally about everything we do. It's OK. I've, I've done my job here. I'm going to move on to the next client. Right. Right. And there was always someone who would call. Um, and I would speak at conferences on occasion also. And almost inevitably, I would speak at a conference and within six months, right, sometimes it would take that long, someone would call me up and say, hey, I saw you speak there. Could you help my company too? Mm -hmm. So I always felt like most of the time there was enough stuff coming through the door um, that it was okay. Not amazing, but okay. Um, and uh, I would even go, like, if I were really desperate, uh, I would start going on to Elance, now Upwork, and start sending out proposals. And I actually got two great clients from there, uh, one of whom I'm still with till today. But when I think about the number of hours I put into sending proposals that went absolutely nowhere versus the number of clients I actually got, I, quite a sinkhole for time. Yeah. Let's get an idea of what, what's going on now. So you're still doing web development, right? You're right, still right. So I'm, I'm doing development and I've got, um, usually for the last few years, I've had uh, one employee, sometimes up to two, but usually one who, and, and so it would be the sort of the two of us. And I would have more of a CTO, uh, senior developer type role. They would have more of a junior developer type role. And I would look for projects for one or for both of us. Okay, so and, you're doing well enough that you can basically keep two people afloat full time. Well, well, actually, <laughs> the the in the wake of the dot com implosion in two thousand and me having to lay people off, um, I swore I would never have a full time employee again. So it's all hourly. So basically, my employees have always gotten a, a large percentage of whatever I bill. Oh sure, um, yeah. Well, what I meant is you have enough kind of uh, uh, quote unquote man month availability to be able to keep two people. Fed. I don't mean yeah. like a full-time salaried employee or anything. I just right, think, right, right. And, yeah. and some months they would get zero and some months they would get a lot. Um, but for me, there was almost always enough. I mean, I always paid the mortgage. I always had enough for groceries. Like sometimes we had to play some games. Sometimes we had to take out some loans. But overall, we were doing okay. Right, right. But okay, so but nowadays you, you're doing web development and you're also doing training. Is there any other... I know you've got an ebook, right, on Python. So I've, got, I've got two ebooks. Okay, uh, one about Python that I published a little more than a year ago, and one about regular expressions that I published uh, just about a month ago, a month and a half. Now, ago. are those meant for revenue, or are they really just meant for lead generation? Oh no, those are meant for revenue. I mean, that's the okay. ideal. Got it. Sure. Well, I mean, both is both is great too. I mean, and when you can all have listeners, all listeners should buy copies for themselves and all their friends. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> buy everyone on your Twitter feed a copy of Ruben's books. Exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, and, and in fact, like, well, I mean, I'll get to this in a little bit also, but my, my, well, so, so what happened basically was um, I was pretty happy overall. And then, as you know, I'm a panelist on the freelancer show. And um, the advice that we would keep giving the people was you should really find something 
we, we sort of gave the same advice from a variety of different angles. One was think of who your ideal client is and try to find more clients like that. Another was you should really focus on one thing instead of trying to do lots of different things. Um, and the third thing is you should stop billing by the hour and you should start building up these sorts of productized consulting engagements that you can sell as blocks. And the fourth thing was try to build a pipeline far into the future. And I was like, well, I'm giving this advice. Maybe I should start taking it, <laughs> right? Because it, it, the more I said it, the more it made sense. Um, and at a certain point, I said, I, oh, I see. The, the other part is um, when I came back uh, from doing my PhD coursework in Chicago, so that was already, what was that, 2008, um, a friend of mine introduced me to a training company here in Israel. And I said, you know what? I love doing the training. This way I can offload, while I finish the PhD, all of the uh, sort of logistics, marketing, sales, billing, all that stuff to someone else. Sure, if they can sell my time, all the better. And what happened was that there was this explosion of interest in Python and the other open source technologies that I train in. So it would start with one course every two months. Then it was one course a month. Then it was two courses a month. And basically, I got to the point with this training company where I, I was already two, three, four months scheduled in advance with almost no free time. And then the pay dropped. And I said, wait a second. I love doing this. It pays well. I'm booked far in advance. I'm being known for a specialty. Like, this is what I've been telling people to do, and I'm happy. The only thing that's missing here is why am I not making more money? And the answer is, of course, the training company through which I was working. So I went to them and tried to negotiate higher pay, um, and they basically said no. And then I heard that they had some terrible financial crises uh, and scandals, and then it was clearly going to be no. So did they, did they not only book you clients, but did they give you the curriculum, or was, that, was it up to you to develop what you were going to be training? If I had asked, they probably would have given me syllabi, um, but they never did. Like I never did. The, my assumption was always, I'm going to come up with all the content. This is mine. Um, and we never even discussed who had the rights to it. Like It was never even a thought. They would on occasion call me and say, hey, we've got a course going on uh, in one of the subjects you teach. Would you mind selling us your slides? Mm. And I would say to them, I could, I guess, in theory, but I don't think anyone else could teach for my slides. And yeah. so it never ended up happening. Got it. Got it. Okay, so they were really just a matchmaker for you at first. Right, they were a matchmaker. And I have to say, they were very nice to me. They mm -hmm. really were very decent to me. They paid me on time. Um, but what really, like, boiled my blood at some point was someone came up to me during a, uh, an open enrollment Python class I taught. And he said, do you know how much each of us is paying to be here? And I said, no, I actually have no idea how much each of you is paying to be here. And he said, oh, I'll tell you then. And it worked out that basically the company was bringing in somewhere around $25,000 for these four days of training. Um, and they were paying me about 10% of that. Okay. okay. And I went to them and I said, <laughs> come on, guys. And they said, well, you know, we have a very fancy building with very high overhead. <laughs> <laughs> because because you're in that building all the time, right? I mean, like yes. you care all about their building and their Aeron chairs and everything else. Which we're not. And by the way, oh, the other thing was like when they had this financial scandal, um, I did a course that ended, like started in August and ended in September. And so when September 1st rolled around, they took out all the free coffee machines, put in coin-operated coffee machines, and put up a poster saying, you're so lucky you don't have to pay 10 shekels, like two and a half dollars, to pay for coffee at the, the place at the cafe down the street, we will only charge you half of that for our coin-operated machines. And people said, we are paying so much for this course, and now you're gonna like charge us for coffee too? Is there no end to to like your chutzpah? <laughs> so so I saw this place was not doing well. I saw that I was being booked in advance, and I I said, okay, enough. I think I can do this on my own. Like, mm -hmm. or I can go back to doing it on my own. Did you, I mean, you were already doing on your own 
direct client work, right? Like consulting. Yes. Or, so yes. did you just change the conversation with some of these clients and say, like, hey, would you also like me to help train your staff? Or like, how did that transition work? So there were a few occasions when my consulting engagements turned into training, but for the most part, they were separate worlds. Like it was rare for consulting to turn into training or, or vice versa. Um, so I had like my training clients and big companies like Apple and Cisco and SanDisk uh, who, who were calling me and like just constantly more and more and more courses. They couldn't get enough. Um, so basically I told the people at Cisco uh, that I was going to be going to work on my own. And they were like, oh, well, we'll just work with you directly. Like, it, like I didn't even have to say much. They just did it. And they said it. Um, and they said, but as long as there's no problem between you and this training company. And I told the training company I was not going to continue working with them. And they said, well, wait, what kind of uh, non-compete did we sign you on? And I said, none. And they said, oh. <laughs> 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 and so within a month, I got calls from other companies like Apple and SanDisk. And I said, well, you know, I'm not working with this training company anymore. And they said, yes, yes, we've heard. So I don't know who's talking to whom or what, but basically within months, um, I already uh, had my own clients, and I already and I had this pipeline still from the training company about five months. So I had a very easy cushion moving from working for them to working on my own, and it gave me a chance to sort of test the waters and make sure I was really going to be able to book on my own. And that became basically a no-brainer. So it sounds like you really had two two pipelines, two audiences. One of them were looking for actual Python or or web development work, and the other was looking for training. Right. Okay. Right. And. and Although I think that I was medi- – I, I, I think I've always been good at selling myself and mediocre at selling uh, my company. Mm, okay. Um, so filling my pipeline has almost never been a problem. Filling the pipeline of my employees has been more difficult for me. And I'm not sure if it's just my, my marketing sense, my sales pages, uh, or I think at the end of the day, like people came to me because they wanted to work with me because uh, I was sort of a visible figure. And when they hear, oh, we're going to work with this other guy, then they say, well, maybe. Um, even if the other people were great, which which they are. I've, I've basically managed to hire great people over the years. Yeah. That, that, well, my next question was going to be, do you, I'm assuming with the development work, that's something you, you delegate out frequently. But with your training work, is that just you? For now, it's just me. Okay. Um, and my, I once, I had this guy working for me for a very short period and it was disastrous. Like basically <laughs> everything he did, I got complaints from the clients. And I remember being with my family like on a day off and getting a call from these people saying, listen, your guy showed up to teach a JavaScript course. What the hell? Like, like <laughs> what, what, what was this? It was nothing like what we expected. Right. And that basically taught me that if I'm going to send people out to the field to teach on my behalf, they have to be so incredibly amazing that I can't have any fears whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, that. well, that's always the trick. I mean, whether you're doing training or, or even development, I mean, if you're selling a quote-unquote product, you need to make sure there's consistency in manufacturing, for, for lack of a better way of putting it, I guess. Where, right. Yeah. But, but I think that I'm. It, it's easier to sort of judge a developer's skills, and people are more forgiving of a developer. Like, they come in, as long as they get the technology stuff done, people are usually going to be okay with it. Right. But if you're training, you've got to basically hold an audience's attention. You need to have personality, charisma. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, right. It's more than just being technically proficient at a language. Right. Um, I I spoke to the head of training at uh, Cisco in Shanghai. And he said to me, basically, I have a lot of people who are great trainers but know nothing about technology. And a lot of people who know about technology are not great trainers. And so finding someone who can do both is rare and we value that. You know, I want to talk about how to kind of how to both how to acquire, how to sell and how to uh, fulfill. 
training. But before we get there, I want to play devil's advocate for a second. And specifically, I want to make the argument again, or I want to be the uh, skeptical freelancer who's listening, who has always, let's say they're a Python developer. They've always done, you know, Django projects or something like that for clients. Um, they've never done any sort of training in any form, any like, you know, structured training. Now, I could see a few excuses coming up uh, or objections, probably a better way of putting it coming up. Um, the, the biggest one would be, well, I'm not a Python expert. You know, I'm not qualified to do that. No one, you know, it's, it's always a little fuzzy because um, there's really no, you know, there's no degree awarded to, you know, for being good at Python, at least that I know of. So, you know, how do you, that that to me would be, I think, a big roadblock to a listener, would, which would be what makes me qualified to do this? So, look, there, there are a few different parts of that. First of all, um, you have to remember that training basically requires like two different skill sets. One is the technical skill set. And one is so, so this is known in the education biz. Here, I'll pull out my education PhD and like show it off a bit. So you have what's known as um, content knowledge which is like knowing the domain. Yeah. And then you have what's known as pedagogical content knowledge, which is knowing how to teach that domain. Right, how to transfer and, and the knowledge. That's right. And, and so if you're interested in training, then you've basically got to sharpen those two skill sets. And that will take time. So like no one's born knowing how to do either of those. Um, and so what you'll have to do is not only be a good developer, but be a good explainer. And I think the best way to do that is just to try. Go to your local user group meetings and start giving talks. And if you enjoy it, and if people invite you back, and if people come up to you with more questions, then you'll know, hey, you're sort of okay at this. The second part is, and this is like an old, old, like, like saw, which is the best way to learn something is to teach it. At least, at least half and probably three quarters of the material in my courses is the result of people asking me questions during the course. Um, if I were to go back in time 10 years, even five years, and look at the courses I was teaching in Python, I think I would be embarrassed by my lack of knowledge, by the superficiality, by everything. So everyone starts somewhere. Um, and, and you'll get better. And, and as long as you're sort of committed to getting better, you will. The third thing is that you have to think in terms of availability. Right, like so. If you're going to do this sort of corporate training during the day, that means that you are not only um, a domain expert and not only willing to teach it, but you're also available during the day. Right? I'm convinced, absolutely positively convinced, that there are other people in Israel and elsewhere where I work who would be better Python trainers than I am, but they have full-time jobs. <laughs> right? Right? This is not what they do, and so they just can't do it. And in fact, the training company that I worked with um, offered me a chance to teach during the evenings. And they said, oh, yeah, but we pay half price because, um, you know, more people are available to do it. That makes sense. And, and, you know, one thing I wanted to add to all that was, in my mind, you know, you were talking about how how do you become proficient at, at what did you call it, Pedi pedagogical content? Like how, how to yeah, actually, pedagogical content knowledge. Sure. Like how, how to teach, how, how to explain complicated things and, and distill it down into something easy to comprehend. You could say that if you're giving a conference talk, you're doing training. Um, if you are writing a book, you're doing training or, you know, so, I mean, th those are all different forms of training. And what's helped me personally has been, you know, I have an so I'm about to go speak at the 99U conference up in New York. And to me, it's a little intimidating because the people like Jason Fried is speaking and Ryan Holiday and uh, the guy who started Treehouse and like these big, you know, these big people. And, you know, to me, it, when I was talking to the organizer the other day, I was, I was like, is this, you know, I was kind of thinking, is this above kind of my 
quote unquote pay grade. But what I realized is when we when I started talking with him and kind of laying out what I wanted to talk about, it really came easy to me what I wanted to say, the examples I gave him that I'd probably touch on and everything. And I realized it's because I'd written about this stuff for four years now, you know, consistently. And I I'd blogged about it and everything else. And it's made it so easy for me to kind of go up on a stage with very little uh, nervousness or hesitation and, and pretty clearly, I think, uh, explain something because it's it's not something it's something I've done before again and again and again. That being said, one of the benefits of let's say you want to be you want to get into Python training and you do a lot of these, uh, you know, you kind of practice by blogging in a way. Well, that ends up serving your ultimate purpose of getting clients because, you know, clients are going to want to be able to see in advance, especially if you don't have a huge, uh, you know, track record. You don't you know, they haven't been referred to you or whatever else by being able to see how do you actually explain these things? Um, that's a huge thing. And what I've also seen is, you know, if you want to speak at local meetups, well, when you have this arsenal of stuff you've already created, that's really helpful and gets you in the door. And then once you go to that meetup, you record it, you put it up on YouTube, you put, the, you know, now you have another asset, which will maybe help you get to the regional conference and speak there. You know, it just builds up from there. And that's, I mean, I've seen that a lot. I mean, a lot of the people that I, not, not as much at the business conferences, but at the technical conferences who give presentations, they do a lot of training. They're very in-demand consultants and they're, they're that way because they started by just honing in on how good they are at explaining complicated processes through blogging and then up the ladder to meetup groups and up the ladder to smaller conferences and so on. Absolutely, absolutely 100%. I mean, I'm now at the point where certainly in my intro Python course and to some degree in my advanced Python course, I can more or less anticipate or I, I I can more or less answer at the drop of a hat almost any question someone's going to ask because I've been exposed to so many questions over the years. Um, and and I have, for most of those, good pat answers. Um, and that's simply because I had bad answers. <laughs> and and I thought through it. I said, okay, I need to come with a better explanation. And I would sort of do homework and I'd work on it and I'd blog about it. And so over time, as my mental models and my explanations got clearer, I was able to provide them with that clarity. And that that's the value added that I'm providing them. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's not just an API level knowledge. It's the ability to translate that into something that um, the person learning from you can get value, you know, easily derive value from it. You know, and in my mind, you know, to also go back to that expertise question, I was worried at first when I got into. So the first corporate training I ever did was for a Fortune 500 uh, down the street from our, my agency. And they wanted me to come in and teach them uh, jQuery, basically. And I didn't really have a curriculum at the time. You know, I, I really never developed it. Um, I kind of developed it on the fly. But um, I think if I would have done this more frequently, I probably would have had something a little more substantial. But, you know, I, I was nervous. I was kind of thinking, like, who am I? You know, I haven't gone and I haven't been to JavaScript conferences and given presentations on jQuery. I'm not a I don't run a, a huge open source library uh, of you know, for, for a JavaScript project or anything like that. But it, it actually took them. It actually took their person on their end who hires trainers to say to me, the thing is, you just need to be better than the people that you're going to be um, helping, you know, and, and I can tell you firsthand based on, cause we'd already done consulting work for them. And 
based on the fact that we had to look elsewhere for getting help with our JavaScript projects and we turned to you guys, by definition, you know more than our internal team <laughs> about that. And um, and yeah, and, and you know, even at the time I thought, and I don't know if you thought this too, I was like, well, you know, they're a good client. Why would I want to teach teach them what, what we know? Because wouldn't they then stop hiring us? Um, that proved totally untrue. It actually made it more likely for them to hire us in the future. People but, would ask me that all the time. People would say to me, wait a second, if you teach these guys to do what you do, won't you be out of work? <laughs> and, right. and, and my my answer to them was always, these companies have a lot of problems, and this way they're going to give me the more interesting ones because the more boring ones they'll be able to handle themselves. Exactly. And and still, I mean, these are these companies tend to be pretty savvy. They know that even though you know Ruben came in and taught for three days about some concept of Python, the the delta, the the difference between you and the people you trained experience wise and just knowing how to solve problems with Python is still huge. I mean, it's it's you can't you can't bridge that gap in three days. And they know that it's just a matter of now they've, you know, and that's, and I'm going to get into this. I want to get into pricing, but that's something that is important because if, if I don't know how many people typically you train at a time, but let's say it's 10 to 20. And on average, these people will get paid, you know, a hundred thousand a year fully loaded per person. Right. I mean, you're looking at a million, $2 million a year in payroll loan sitting in front of you. And the company's thinking if we can even make these people, four or five percent better at python that's worth a lot to us right um, that's right and that's what i think and that's probably that's why a part of me you know cringe when you said that you build them hourly uh for that you know i do too now don't worry yeah but i mean but here's the thing when i when i did my own training and i had no knowledge of of any of it, like i'd never been uh done anything like that and i was struggling to figure out well what do i charge I was, you know, I, I settled on $20,000 for something that would have taken about, what was it? Four or five weeks, but it was like two days a week. So it came out to like 10 hours total. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, this is an insane amount. And they're like, <laughs> you could tell that they thought, oh, wow, you really butchered your pricing. You could have charged us a lot more. Um, because I was, I mean, there were 50 people I was helping, um, oh which oh I mean, God. that's, yeah. So anyway, lesson learned there. And <laughs> but I, let, let's get into pricing. So, you know, I've heard uh, I know the rule of thumb from people like uh, Patrick McKenzie was always I think is a minimum 5000 a day uh, for, you know, doing onsite corporate training. Um, do you have any do you have any thoughts about that? Like, I mean, not necessarily what do you charge, but I mean, what do you think is is a good rule of thumb? So. Of course, the answer is it depends. And and I say it depends because I'm dealing with a whole bunch of different countries and every country has its own pay scale that they're expe- that, that they sort of can and cannot deal with. So if you're in the US um, or even to some degree in Europe, I've definitely heard five to six thousand a day is totally reasonable. And I've started doing training in Europe now. And in fact, like when I spoke to a company to do it, I was just there. I was in Brussels a few months ago. I'm going back there uh, a few times later this year. Basically, the head of training, and, and I should note, the head of training is your client, right? The people in your course are fantastic, interesting. They're the people you're interacting with. But the person you have to satisfy is the head of training. And the person you have to get through is the head of training. So the head of training said to me, like, don't be nervous. We, we charge a lot more in Europe. 
right? Like than you do in Israel. And our expenses are higher and our, our salaries are higher. So yeah, $5,000, $6,000 a day, no problem. Um, that is less true in other countries. So I can tell you in Israel, I charge much less. And in China, I also charge much less. Um, and when I've tried now, now in Israel, I could raise my prices more, but so, so let me, let me back off for a moment to describe how some of the pricing works. So there are basically three different types of pricing you can deal with. One is to do what are called open enrollment courses. And there you're basically saying, I am renting a room. I am going to take the first 20 people who want to show up. The price is X come with your laptop. I will have Wi-Fi. I will have lunch. Uh, and you will learn. So you might that, you might have four or five companies there, all sending a few people. That's it, right. It's not just one company. Okay. That's right. I have never done that on my own, partly because my pipeline has been so deep. Now, like basically, we're recording this in late April, and I have courses scheduled through early November. Um, so, like, I keep saying, "Oh, I really should do this. I really should do this," and then I just don't have the time to deal with it. But that can be lucrative. That the, the problem there is basically that you're charging per person um, and so you've got to go out and sell it to individual people. The type of training that I typically do is I go into a company and I teach there. So I show up at company X and they have 20 people signed up. I mean between 8 and 20 people depending on the course, depending on the everything. Um, and I'm just sort of on site for four days. And for that you can charge either by the day or by the person. Um, I typically charge by the day. Um, and I just give them a global rate and I say, I will take up to 20 people, uh, in the course when I charge a little less, like when I, when I charge in Israel, um, I'll, uh, I'll say, well, actually you can have only up to 16 people. Um, and that's just to sort of make me feel a little better. It doesn't really substantially change it that much. Um, you can also charge by the person. I know of people who do that. And that basically is it's sort of taking the open enrollment pricing model and applying it to a company. So you say, dear company X. On the following days, I will teach a course, and for each person who comes in, and the number I've heard is $300 a day in the U.S. Um, so $300 a day times 20 people, you're up to $6,000. Um, and that is like a number that I certainly nearly fell off my chair from hearing. Um, and it never worked out that I taught in the U.S. so far. There's one company that wanted me to do it, but they wanted me to do it faster than I could get there. But it's pretty close to that in Europe. And again, they told me, don't worry, this is our budget. And I'm assuming and it, that $6,000 is... I mean, and that's what they're paying you, but they're also reimbursing you for the flight, the hotel, per diem. So, right. Or so, is that so, baked into it? Well, it depends, right? Again, it depends. Um, when I taught in Europe now, the company I was dealing with had a per diem budget. So, like, basically on top of my training, uh, they gave me, I think it's like for four days, they gave me like $2,100, something like that. So as I told my wife, we could pocket all that money and I could row there in a rowboat and sleep on the streets. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I can stay in a really fancy hotel and foot it bill myself. In the end, I think I actually netted $1,000 because I'm a cheapskate and stayed in a hotel right next to them and, like, bought food at the supermarket most of the time. Um, so, so you can sort of play that in different ways. When I go to China um, and other places in Israel, they don't pay for my travel. Oh, actually, in Israel, I pay for my travel. And when I go to China, I don't even know how much the travel costs. They deal with that. So, yes, they're paying on top of that, but they deal with hotel. And, and, yeah, and I would say, I mean, especially when you when you talk about open enrollment, where it's really you selling a product that anyone can potentially purchase. I mean, in that case, you're definitely needing to subsidize travel, venue, all that stuff into your cost, into right. what you're charging people. Yeah. Um, 
And so, I mean, I now have this nice mix. If I look like over the next six months or so, I have this nice mix of some in Israel, some in China, and some in Europe, uh, where the European stuff is definitely the most lucrative for me. And if I were to go to the U.S., it would be you know, even a little more lucrative. But even just staying in Israel, like literally overnight, um, when I moved from the training company to working on my own, my rates doubled. Like literally, bam, because they were no longer taking their... Well, their the middleman's gone. I mean, That's right. Yeah. Now, I could charge more. And this is like an interesting little tidbit, the way some companies work, not all. They have like... So when I propose a course, they basically say... They put it on their internal system. And anyone can sign up for it if they want. Um, and so I can charge whatever I want, more or less, within some reason. The thing is, um, I've learned that some companies, if the course will cost their boss less than $1,000, they don't need to get permission to sign up. So it's worth it for me to charge a little less and then have more courses fill up than to charge more and have every other one uh, be canceled. That makes sense. Yeah, because typically, like you said, a thousand is usually under that is the uh, can swipe it on the credit card with, you know, a negligible expense report and no no real budgeting needs. You know, it's something that they can just expense without really thinking about it. Um and that's, by the way, why um, out of the four courses I was supposed to do so far this year in Europe, only one actually happened because it's so much more expensive. They must fill it up with 20 people. And those are going to be 20 people who need to get approval from their managers. I suppose when I teach uh, you know, in Israel and people just show up, and even they don't show up because they don't, it's no skin off their back, they feel. Uh, they just signed up and didn't get, need to get approval for it. Have you done anything? I mean, it sounds like most of it is pretty transactional where you come in for three days and then you leave. Have you done any sort of ongoing, uh, you know, I'll come in and I'll train your team for three days, but then I'll also be kind of available for questions for the next X months or anything like that. Have you tried that? I haven't tried that yet. I, I've done a few things that are similar to that. So there are a few companies with whom um, I did some training and then it was, I would come in once a week, twice a week, and I would sort of pair with different people on their staff. Um, and I love that. I thought that was just great fun. I think they got a lot out of it also. And I was the only person then sort of seeing all of their code across different people. And then I could sort of summarize what I'd seen and give them lectures every two to three weeks saying, hey, guys, these are some trends that I see that are negative. You should try to improve your code in this way. Something that's sort of kind of similar to that is people in two recent courses suggested, I ran it by some others, and they liked the idea. Um, they said, what, what if you were to come back a month or two from now and do a day-long hackathon. Like instead of a course, you give us a project in the morning and you're here to sort of support us and you've designed the project so that we'll learn from doing it. But basically, we get to spend a time actually digging into the code and doing it. Um, and that provides us with a practice that we don't get in work and we don't get in a course. Yeah, I mean, that that uh, that's, we, we did a few, I mean, we never did like a, a paid hackathon-ish type thing, but we've done that um, you know, back when I had the agency and that was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's fun being able to, you know, they, they could, let's say they're all working in pairs, you go over to a team and you're able to look at kind of what they've been working on and give them advice. And, you know, it's really, uh, it, that's, it's a different kind of dynamic than just traditional presentation-based training. Right. Right. And, and this, by the way, points to another thing that all companies have been interested in and appreciative of. They are totally open to upsell. So, it, with several companies, I've sensed a need for certain courses or certain additional things that they could use, and they've all responded very, very positively. Like, oh yeah, we we would love to have you come and do more things. So once you get in, and once the hire, once the training manager is very happy to bring you in and hire you, um, you're sort of 
then set to do not just the course they originally brought you in for, for but many, many other things potentially as well. Do you ever um, do you ever do any sort of like surveying of the of the attendees in advance where you can get a feel for kind of experience level and things like that? And then you tailor your presentation based off that or is it pretty standardized? Um, so yes and no. When I go to China, I always try to do that, especially if it's a company I'm not familiar with. Um, quite frankly, because every time I go, uh, they require it to be an advanced course because we're not going to pay for someone to come from abroad if it's not advanced. And then two thirds of the people say, I'm here in the advanced Python course because I've heard Python's an interesting language. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay, this is not an intelligence test, right? You could be a very advanced person, very smart programmer and just not know Python. Um, so I've tried with these companies to get a sense sometimes where I send them a survey and then that just confirms my like my suspicions. Um, with Israeli companies, uh, I've done it once or twice just when it wasn't clear what their background was. But typically, typically, actually, the intro courses, it's pretty obvious what their level is. And the advanced courses, it's a mess. Because the advanced courses, people come in, everyone from, I took a Python course five years ago, and now I want to take the next one, to I work with Python every single day for the last three years. And on that front, I don't think a questionnaire or survey will necessarily help. I think we just need to tighten up the syllabus and the prerequisites. And we've started to do that, but people typically don't read. Yeah, right. Um, so, and so I just, you know, I, I try. And, and uh, one, the first thing I do, by the way, in every course is I go around the room, get their names, try to remember them, not always so successful, and find out what their background is so that I can then tailor it accordingly. And I can say, oh, this is sort of like Perl for you and you and you who use Perl before. And, this, and, and, and I think they appreciate that. Have you thought about doing, I mean, the only downside, I think, I mean, it's great money. It's, it's a lot of fun. But the only downside is you're on the road a lot. Is there any, um, have you considered doing any sort of uh, more virtual training, I guess, with these companies? So uh, one company um, I've done virtual training with. Um and actually just allows me to... So, so first of all, I'm not on the road that... Well, I don't know. I, well, I you, you're about, mentioning China, Belgium. Right, I mean, right. that's... So it's, it's turned out to be a little more... Like, I was just telling my my uh, 15-year-old daughter, I was like, oh, my God, next month I'm going to Beijing. Then I'm going to Stockholm for the conference. And then in July, I'm in Shanghai and Brussels. And then we're going to vacation in Portugal. And in August, I'm back in China. Gee, I guess I do travel a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, yes, you do travel a lot. But this is this is new. And uh, we'll see how long it lasts. And And... Definitely part of my interest is in moving toward online training, both for these companies um, where the corporate culture allows for it. And some of them are totally great with it and some of them are not. And doing it on my own, either recorded uh, um, courses or uh, live courses. The thing is, my experience with virtual training is it's just not the same it's dynamic. Not, right. It's not. I mean, it's the same thing. I, I was at a virtual. Um, actually, it was, it was uh, Chuck's conference, the virtual freelancing conference. I thought it was great, but it's not the same as like when I was at MicroConf, you know, or something, right? Yeah. Because you don't it, get that kind of hallway interaction and everything else. One thing that I did, so when I did the online training, I used uh, WebEx. And it took me a few times to sort and, and I actually, WebEx is not bad. Um, it took me a few times, though, I think like the second or third time to start demanding that they turn on their cameras. Um, and even when I demand, like literally three or four times of each day of training, please don't forget to turn on your cameras, only about a third of them would do it. Um, but even when they did it, it changed the dynamic a huge amount because suddenly I saw people. There was a two-day, I think it was a Git course that I taught, two days in which no one had their camera on. It was me talking to my computer like, and a bunch of black boxes for eight hours each day. 
my, my wife thought I was completely insane for doing this. And I must admit, in retrospect, it seems weird. But um, that that's sort of likely to happen because people will tune you out. They'll check Facebook even more often than they normally would. Um, one guy, like, I had, I had this one course where it dwindled down. I think we started the day with four people out of the eight who had signed up. And then it was just two of them. And then after lunch, only one was around. And the other one was like, oh, sorry, since I'm home, I'm taking care of the baby today. <laughs> right? Like, they just don't take it that seriously. Right, right. It's not, it's not a, yeah, yeah. When you talked about the open enrollment, I'd be curious to know when you've done that, is it, is it oftentimes, because one thing that I'm, I'm very cognizant of as somebody now who's doing my own conferences is the realization that the people attending my conference are basically paying for it out of their own pocket. I mean, this is money that they could have, um, I mean, it's paid via their business, but it could be used on a vacation or something like that. Whereas with corporate training, the people attending are not footing the bill. So different dynamic there, right? I mean, there, there's a different, uh, and that's been something where, you know, I've been talking to friends of mine who run uh, more technical conferences, like a, you know, a conference for a language or something like that. And a lot of the attendees are sent by their employer, which, um, you know, it's, just, it's a very different kind of skill set needed, I think, in, in order to sell the two. So I, I think, I mean, I would say starting out, um, I would always try to focus more so on getting people to attend who are not themselves paying, um, you know, instead focus on companies and, and try to pitch the company on making their staff more experienced and better at their job. And, and that's part of the beauty um, that I've discovered in doing training, right? Usually when I'm doing development work, I then have to go and I have to convince a company to basically give me their money and how much it's a negotiation. And like, we've discussed this before, basically, especially in Israel, Every company wants to negotiate you down. Every company basically turns whatever you do. You can call it a day rate, a weekly rate. You can call it a fixed rate. They will say, oh, so that works out to X per hour, right? It does not matter what you do. And, oh, and, and we want X minus 10% per hour. So, or 20 or whatever. With training, though, it's a totally different kettle of fish. First of all, they have pre-allocated budgeting for training. And it is not coming from the people who do development. It's coming from the people who do training. So they're not measuring your time against that of a developer. And they're not saying, oh, well, we could like just we could hire a new programmer or we could bring in training. It's totally separate budgets. The training person says, we have this pot. We know how much training costs roughly per day. And so if a company comes in like and they ask for that, sure, we'll give it to them. Uh, I, I have a friend who does Python training here in Israel um, at a company where I do Postgres training. And I mentioned them at some point, you know, he's not doing so much training anymore. Um, like, would you be interested in me doing it? And they said, oh, no, no, he's much cheaper. So I called him up and I said, listen, I'm not taking your work away, but you should charge more. They have this money. He was like, oh, no, no, I don't want to charge more. I want them to be happy. And I believe in spreading the knowledge. And I think, like, if his bank account heard this, they would start doing <laughs> like, like, he's literally, literally leaving money on the table there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so the amounts you can get in the, the negotiation is much shorter. The amounts can be much higher, um, and and the the um, whole deal making is very fast, right? Because you just say this is what I charge, and assuming it's in their ballpark, they say, okay, great, let's run with it. It's different because, like you said, well, first off, it's there's often money earmarked for kind of what do they call it, like employee development or something like that, right? which could be a lot of different things. It could be um, sending them to conferences or whatever else. And I mean, I think the real benefit um, to you is that, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm going to make a, an assumption, but I think maybe some 
employers might think, well, if I send uh, Ruben to this conference, you know, they're going to he's just going to be out you know, hammering drinks all night at, you know, at the, <laughs> at the after party and everything. And, you know, the talk, the talks will be varied and kind of like, sure, you know, a lot of random different things covered. Whereas we bring in somebody who can explicitly be there with the intent of making our staff better. You know, it's, it's, if I was the person who was in charge of spending that budget and wanting, uh, wanting my team to actually be better off as a result, I would probably lean more towards uh, training on site versus uh, sending up my team across the country, footing, uh, you know, hotel expenses, uh, flights, conference tickets and everything else. Um, and instead bring in a trainer. Absolutely. And the thing is also like at the end of every course, every company again does it slightly differently, but every company wants to have the evaluation. Like how good was this course? And they usually do it along uh, uh, like you know, a, a, a few different dimensions. They'll ask anywhere from five to 20 questions of their employees. And that gets back to you, right? And, and so basically if you get high ratings, then they will bring you back. And why? Not because you're a great trainer. Yes, you're a great trainer. But it's because it makes the training manager look good, right? They brought someone in who then got them high scores. And so, um, right, and so the, the bosses who are in charge of allocating money for this will say, yeah, we'll spend more money on this because look at the positive results we're getting. Um, you know, every, everyone's then happy all around, and it's seen as a good expense. I'm not sure how much the training managers really think in terms of we are making our company more efficient, right? That's a pitch to, I think, smaller and medium-sized companies. The moment you get into, like, Fortune 100, like, you, you have the training department and they are simply responsible for finding vendors and making it easy, f- make it easy for themselves by finding vendors who are easy to work with. Right, right. It's it's like procurement. I mean, they they are yeah. so far removed from the actual needs of the training. They're just there to hire training vendors. I mean, that's their job. Right, right. But if you if you can make them happy, then they will make you very happy. So let's let's close with this uh, with this thought. So if, if somebody's listening who is a, you know, they're a talented developer, talented designer, whatever it is they are, what would you recommend would be a good first step to kind of dip their feet in the in the water when it comes to starting training? So I, I would say you want to do two things at once, maybe even three. Um, one is get practice speaking at meetups at conferences. And that's not only good for you in terms of getting practice and hammering out your uh, talk and your syllabus. I, I try nowadays, if I can, to proceed each new course I do with a webinar. So I can just try out the material and see where it, it, it works and does not. Um, so you, But the other thing is there will be people in the audience who will say, wow, that was a great talk. Let's talk to them and maybe do a, 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 like a, a three-way conference call with me and this person and our hire and our training manager to bring them into our company, right? So it's good marketing in addition to being good practice for you. The second thing is I would definitely call training managers at companies near you in your domain and say, and this I'm stealing straight from uh, Jonathan Stark, uh, who told, told me this is what he tells his coaching, uh, sub, you know, coaching students to do. Call up a company and say, I'm working on um, a course to do X and Y and Z. I want to take your needs into consideration. Would you have 15 minutes to talk to me about what you're doing in Python, what you're doing in Git, whatever, in terms of your training needs. Um, and some companies will say no. Some companies will never get back to you. And some companies will say, yeah, we'd love to hear from someone who wants to know what we want to learn. Um, and little by little, then you can get your toe in the door and become known as pr- someone who's doing that. Right, right. Yeah. So 
first off, I just want to thank again. This is something that you know my head's spinning because I'm thinking of what what I could have been done differently five six years ago when I was running the agency. Unfortunately, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But um, but no, th- this has been great. I mean, it's something that I I know. You know, in my mind, it's a really good leap leap forward towards really turnkey productization. I mean, you're not far off from being able to package a lot of what you're, you know, the, the stuff you're saying again and again during these training sessions into something more turnkey, into something more, uh, dare I say, mass market, right? Where you could absolutely, have- absolutely, and that's part of my thinking. Also, like, huh, if I have these things, and I can basically teach, like my intro Python course, I can more to, more or less teach in my sleep now. Right, I've done it so many times. It's I think pretty smooth. Why not take that and turn that into like a video course? Um, and that's probably happening in the coming months when I find some time to do it. But for now, even if it's live and even if it's taking my time, this is totally like as far as I'm concerned, productized consulting. Right, I have something. They know the price. We set a date. Bam, it happens. Well, that's that's exactly what it, I mean. It is productized consulting, and the, I mean the the nice thing about it is. Unlike a video course, it's bi-directional. You get feedback in real time from the students, which means the video course you end up doing is going to be so much better than if you hadn't done any of this live training. Um, this live training is building up your kind of like knowledge base in terms of what are the where are people getting caught up and and what what's going over people's heads and you know everything else. Which means when you make that kind of that turnkey course, it'll be so much better. So, Absolutely. I mean, I, I fully rec- I mean, I think whether you're doing whatever it is you're doing, um, it should be done in a format like this first because it will give you, you know, a video course, people can't talk back to it. I mean, yeah, sure. They can email you and say, hey, you know, this didn't make any sense or whatever, but it's kind of hard to go back. As somebody who has a video course, it's kind of hard to go back and make changes. So, <laughs> you know, and I'll even I'll even go so far as to say that I have a nice advantage that I teach in Israel where people have no hesitation in criticizing <laughs> you. Like if you if you mess up in front of them, they'll be like, I mean, I even had like, I, I started teaching this Python course. Like I think I said, welcome, it's nice to see you all. Good morning. And this guy said, What is this crap you're teaching? Python is a terrible language. Why aren't you teaching something like .NET? I'm like, why did you come here? <laughs> and it sort of went downhill from there. But people are very uninhibited, which which has meant great feedback for me in improving the course, as opposed to uh, people who would be very nice and polite but never say anything and never help me improve. Right, right. So, Ruben, um, first off, thank you again for coming on. And secondly, if you want to see Ruben, little bird says he might be speaking. Uh, you're going to want to go to uh, you're going to want to go to the Stockholm conference in, in Sweden. So uh, I'm yeah. super, super excited to go to the conference. Um, really stoked about it. And I would like to meet as many people who are listening to this as possible. Yeah. Well, Ruben, thanks again for coming on. My pleasure, Fred. And like I mentioned, uh, Ruben is a is one of the headline speakers at the conference, along with people like uh, Nathan Berry, Laura Elizabeth, Kai Davis, Julie Elster, a lot of other people. You're going to want to go over to doubleyourfluencing.com slash euconf, and you can find out all about who's talking, what they're talking about, where it is, and everything else. Um, you're going to want to get your tickets fast. Like I mentioned a few episodes back, we are selling out, and it is a nice, nice and small event. This isn't going to be a, you know, a place where you're going to be lost in a crowd of, of people wearing name matches. Instead, you're going to be uh, with a, a very small, tight-knit group of people who are all passionate about their business. So I hope you can make it. 
And uh, I'd love to see you. And I know Ruben would love to see you there too. All right. We'll see you next time for another episode of the Business of Freelancing.